So far what we're talking about, if you recall I mentioned that all Hashkofa or all our understanding of the Bria from the standpoint of Yiddishkeit really revolves around one central idea and that central idea really is an understanding of the Rabbanish of God Himself. Now, what I've been doing last week and what I'll be doing this week is to explain the idea but you won't see how the understanding of the idea actually expresses itself in all the different various aspects of Ashkofa. That will probably start from next week and on. In other words, you'll begin to see how the understanding of the Rabbani Shalom himself is the pivotal point upon which the entire Bria revolves around. And then you first understand why it's so important to take our time to go through these ideas even though some of them are very abstract and they tend to be, they tend to look very philosophical. But the truth is that one must know them if he really wants to understand a lot of the ideas of Hashkofa. Now, last week we just ended just with some of the ideas to begin this week. And that is, we were examining what is, or rather, what are some of the things that the Rebunishim created. We know the Rebunishim created the universe, but what's not really understood or really known by most people is what the Rebunishim created. And last week I had mentioned that the idea, the general categories of what he created basically are three. One is that all objects were created, all things that we know of, that we can touch, concrete objects, uh, trees, uh, plants and so on, you know, all the different things in the universe. The second thing that was created is ideas themselves. In other words, it's not only the objects themselves that were created, but also ideas. Ideas themselves were given existence. What kind of ideas? Ideas such as good, evil, justice, war, and so on. All these ideas are abstract ideas. In other words, they're things which don't exist in themselves. They're ideas about certain relationships or whatever. That these ideas themselves were nivra, were created. For instance, as I said, the idea of justice. The idea of justice itself is a created idea. Before the Rebellion created the Bria, there was no such thing or no such idea called justice or din. There's no such idea called evil. Evil is a nivra. There's no such thing as bad before Rebellion created the concept called evil or bad. So actually at one time there was really no such thing as bad. But then there was really no such thing as good either. Even the concept of toiv or good is a created concept. So the, and the third idea, which I had mentioned, is that not only were objects created and ideas were created, but what was also created is the concept of reality that we exist in. The framework of reality itself. And I gave examples. In other words, the framework includes the laws of existence, the laws of being. What, what do I mean by these? I gave examples last week. For instance, that nothing can be and not be at the very same instant in time. Right? We all know that. This shtender, for instance, cannot exist and then also not exist at the exact same instant in time. Either it's here or it's not here. That is a certain fundamental principle of reality. 
Another principle which I mentioned, for instance, this tape recorder cannot be a tape recorder and a desk at the very same instant. It's a contradiction, correct? In other words, it's either a tape recorder, okay, and if it is a tape recorder, it cannot be itself and something else at the very same instant time. Therefore, or rather, this forms a very crucial understanding of reality. That's a very fundamental law of reality. Those are two examples. Now, of course, our understanding of reality is such as to conform to what reality is. When the revolution created logic, or the way we think, he, he put into our minds the very same axioms, the very same ideas with which he created the universe. In other words, since there can't be contradictions in the universe, because that's the way he made the universe, that a thing cannot be it and something else at the same time, therefore we think logically, or rather we think of the idea that, of course, it's contradictory. So therefore, if I tell you right now it's night, and you say it's not night, it's day. So I say, well, why can't it be both? Then obviously, I don't know what I'm talking about. Because we both know that it cannot be day and night at the very same instant time. You can have day and then follow night or whatever, but it can't exist simultaneously. Why? Because the Brie was created that way. That laws of existence are that a thing can only be what it is, and it cannot be something else. That is a nivra. And our minds conform to that nivra. We think logically, which really means that God created our minds to conform to the same pattern the way he created the universe, the laws of existence. The notion of what the revolution created is very important to understand. And many people don't understand, they think that the revolution created things, when in reality he created things which are much deeper than that. The very bedrock that reality lies in, the laws of existence, was also created. Now that was last week, which brings us again now into this week, and that is that if that's the case, if the Russian made objects and he made ideas and he made the actual framework of reality, well, who says he was restricted to only making this system? He could have made many systems, and the answer would be you're right. The revolution could have created an infinite variety of different systems. In other words, he could have created a completely different universe having completely different objects than we know of, different ideas than we know of, and even a different framework of reality than we know of. And not only could have made another one, he could have made an infinite variety of different systems. In other words, the system that we live in, I mean the universe, right? The things we see, the ideas, the framework of reality, we call that one system. That's an entire system. Okay? It's an entire universal system. But the Russian couldn't could have made an infinite variety of different universal systems. Okay? Each one being completely different than the other. Now, why the Russian made this system and nothing else, nobody knows. That's not known. Only Russian knows why he made this system as opposed to some other kind of existential system. But the idea I want to bring out is that this is only one kind of a system. The revolution could have created an infinite variety of systems, which shows us how awesome his might is. Imagine we cannot comprehend even this system. We could spend billions of years trying to figure out what in the world is going on. 
in physics and astronomy and biology and so on, let alone the fact that he could have created an infinite variety of systems. So all infinity couldn't, wouldn't be enough time to all figure out what the revolution could have created. So, you know, when you talk about the Chokhmah of the Rebbein or the ability of the Rebbein it's incredible. When we talk about systems, we really talk about our system, but in truth, the Rebbein could have created an infinite variety of systems. Which leads us to the next idea, that if that's the case, how do we perceive the Rebbein We only perceive him from our system. That's the only way we know the Rebbein in terms of our system. Now, what does that mean? How do we understand that, really? Let me give you an example. Take the United Nations, okay? Now, let's assume that there's a man, Robert Smith, okay? He goes into the UN, United Nations. Now, the United Nations has many, many different nations, okay? And in the United Nations, each, each country has its own offices. And all of a sudden, let's say it's a holiday, New Year's, whatever, and everybody's throwing a different party. Each nation is throwing a different party, okay? And this guy, Robert Smith, would like to attend all of them, okay? But he doesn't want to come in as Robert Smith because he'll never get in. So you know what he does? He walks over to the Asia section and he sees China's having a great party, right? So he puts on a Chinese costume and he masquerades himself like a Chinese, slants his eyes, you know, whatever, whatever's necessary to look like a Chinese guy, okay? And he's also familiar with the culture of China. So he actually acts like a Chinese guy, he speaks like, he speaks like them, his mannerisms like them, and he walks into the room and he beautifully blends in. They never know he's an American guy. Right? It's just like a Chinese guy. Okay? He's got a, he spends a half hour there, and they all ask him what's his name, Robert Smith. Well, it sounds a funny name for a Chinese guy, but okay. Maybe his parents were American. He goes out of the room, goes into another room, and he sees Nigeria. They're having a great bash in Nigerian hall. Okay? He goes into Nigeria, then he, of course he changes his costume with a toga or whatever they wear there. You know, he paints himself black puts on a mask where he's got the African features and so on. He acts like a Negro in black and so on and so forth. And he goes in, he has a great time. They ask him his name, Robert Smith, okay? And of course, they never, they never know because he acts, acts exactly like one of them. He goes out of there, okay? And then he goes into another room, Russians. Russians are Slavs. And, uh, and he, again, he dresses like a Russian. You know, maybe he's got one of these fur hats and so on and so forth. And he drinks a lot of vodka and so on. And so on. And he goes to all the different nations, okay? And then when he gets out of there, okay, he goes home. He went to, let's say, 70 different countries, all the representatives. He goes home, and then during, after part, the next day, you know, we had this great guest, you know, some guy, Robert Smith. So then the other, you know, Nigeria says to China, we had a great guy, Robert Smith, from China. I said, what do you mean, Robert Smith? He was in our party. She says, what do you mean, he's your party? He was black like us. What do you mean, he's black? He's Chinese like us. And all of a sudden, all the nations get together, and they realize that Robert Smith pulled a fast one. That there was one guy, Robert Smith, who attended every party, yet looked exactly like them. So everybody wonders, who is the real Robert Smith? Or, will the real Robert Smith please stand up? Put it in the American uh, expression. What does that show us? It shows us that this person appeared to each individual nation in their own guise. Their culture, their language, their costume, okay? And when he went to another nation, he appeared as them. And nobody really knows who he was. Now, that's the example. But even that example is not total. Why? Because he, this person, Robert Smith, was still a man, right? He still breathed like them. He was basically the same, except there were certain variations that he had that was different than all of them. 
Okay. So if we see that this individual was not known to any of the nations that he attended the party at, wasn't known to any of them, and of course he appeared to them in each one in their own different system or guise. Take the Malachim, angels. The Rebbeinu created two different universes: the spiritual universe and the physical universe. Now, both of them comprise really one system. In other words, there are things we share in common with Malachim. Okay, but by and large, they are so different than us that they're almost different system. In other words, from a larger standpoint, we and them are part of the Bria, the creation. So from a certain standpoint, we share certain things with them. However, they are so different from us in kind that it's not like the difference between a black and a white, a Chinese and an Indian or whatever. The difference is incredibly vast, almost to the extent where they're mamish a different system. But of course they're not. They are still part of the universal creation, okay? But they're variations, even though they're incredibly different variations. Far more than this Robert Smith with the people in the UN. No. So therefore, again, the reversion we see created a different system, or rather a, a tremendous variation in the first system, Malachim, or the whole spiritual universe, but still, by and large, they're all part of our system. Now, a Malach, when a Malach comes into our system, and today is very appropriate, today is my era, right? All of a sudden, Avram is visited by three Malachim. When a Malach comes in to our system, you know, here you have an, a being coming from one system to the other system. He must adapt the guise of that system. He's not comprehensible in his system because we don't know that system. Okay? So what did the Malachim do? They adapted the guise of human beings. Somehow they change, they look like humans, they act like humans, and they act like Arabs, where Avram thought they were. Okay? And when they ate, of course, it looked like they were eating. But in truth, underneath that guise, they were malochum. They were beyond our particular system, or they were certainly different, a variation than us. So therefore, when one being goes from one system to the next, he assumes the identity or the guise of that system. Even when Moshe Rabbein went into Shemayim, which was a, a reverse intrusion, you have the malochum coming down here, and Moshe Rabbein went into Shemayim to receive the Torah, he also adapted some of the guise of the other system. That's why he didn't need food and water. Because in that system one does not eat. So his being sort of took on a great deal of the... In other words, he had the guise outwardly anyway of the Ruchnistiga system. So therefore he wasn't subject to many... The laws of physical reality were suspended. When he came back, it started again. Okay? So again, the same notion. Now... The Rabbanishan himself is beyond all systems. In other words, it's not like the Malachim who are different, they are variations in our system, but they're still part of the Bria. The Rabbanishan is completely beyond any, any existential system that we know of or can possibly conceive of. He's beyond any system. I see now you begin to see what it means to be beyond the system. Now, that's what it means when they say The etzem means the real self of God is not known. It's not known, it's not understood, it's not comprehensible by any entity outside of himself. Because when Rabbi Shalom appears to any entity outside of himself, 
How does he appear in their system? Like Robert Smith appeared in each of these people. But of course Robert Smith is still a human. The Rebbein when he appears to a universe, it's only in the universal system that he created himself. What does that mean? For instance, the, let's take the idea of strength. The Rebbein also yamsuf, right? All of a sudden he splits the sea and the, the ocean split. That's an incredible act of strength. Gvura, tremendous might. But yet, Gvura, so the Rebbein is displaying an attribute called strength, right? But the truth is that the idea of Gvura itself is a created idea. But when the Rishonim interacts with the universe, he interacts with our known concepts. And we have a concept called strength. And when the Rishonim performs things, it looks like he's performing them with incredible strength. But the truth is that the idea of Gvura really is not applicable to him. We don't know what he is. What do you mean God has no strength? When he interacts with our universe, he can perform infinite amount of strength. But the idea of strength is not applicable to him. He doesn't have what's called strength in terms of his real self. Then what does he have? We don't know. And what does it mean that he doesn't have strength in terms of himself? Again, we don't know. We cannot conceive of a being outside our system. A being in our... We can only conceive of a being, it's got to be something... He's got to have some kind of attribute, strength, or he's got to, you know, he has to have substance. There's got to be something there. The Rebbein is beyond all of that. So then, question, we don't understand what it means for a being to be beyond that. And I don't understand what it means for what he can possibly be. So if you thought you had some, his etzem, his self, is not known to any being outside himself. So you, if you thought you had an inkling of what the Rabbani Shalom is, you begin to realize how far he is removed from your conception, your comprehension of what a being God really is. So in other words, within our system, the Rabbani Shalom is certainly not. And he's not any infinite systems that he could have created. And he's beyond all systems. And when we conceive or perceive him, he sort of like enters our system, like Robert Smith enters their room, guised as them. And then when he leaves, he's not a Chinese. When the Russian leaves our system, so to speak, he's not anything like we think he is. He's not known. He's completely beyond. And beyond means he's not just another looking kind of being. He's another kind of person, whatever. No, even the ideas that are applicable to us, like strength, might, um, jealousy, and so on, that are applicable to human beings, are not applicable even to him, in terms of his real self. And even the laws of existence are not applicable to him. And that's why he can violate them, like I mentioned last week. He transcends those laws. He can make something be and not be at the same instant in time. He can, he can pull off contradictions that we, of course, cannot conceive of, because he transcends those laws. So therefore the Rebbein is beyond any system. But when he's perceived by us, he's perceived only within our system. So you get an appreciation of what it means that the Rebbein is completely incomprehensible. Very important to understand. That's what they say, don't magashim the Rebbein Don't make him physical. That's what you do. You know, everybody's got a different conception. Like some Hasidim think he's got a streimelon and a big beard and a long rekel, a azad and kapota and so on. Maybe Litvaks think he's got the uh, short coat or whatever Litvaks should, you know, dress, and, and so on. 
or Sephardic Eden think he's dark colored and he got poor. I mean, you know, and so on. The Roshim is none of these things. He's not human. He is a human. And not only is he a human, he's a system, means he's beyond or outside of the system. But nevertheless, he exists. And he's as much human as any of us in the sense that he created what? Humanity. If you think that God has to be human to appreciate humanity, you're making a big mistake. He created humanity. Who God created the idea of compassion. So therefore, the Rebbe can his act can be the quintessence of compassion, infinitely greater than your compassion. He doesn't have to be human in order to understand humanity. He created humanity. So in a certain sense, he is the greatest human being of all, in that sense. That all the attributes that we see, the good attributes that we see in humanity, he is the, he is the quintessence of that. He is the perfection of that middle even though he himself is not human. Okay? He doesn't have to be human. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's meanest to think even that he has a shaykhus to humanity. Okay? So that's what it means. You, don't, you can't make gosh him the Roshim. You cannot make the Roshim physical. But it means not only making him physical, don't make him spiritual either. God is not a spiritual being. He doesn't resemble the Malachim either. He's beyond, infinitely beyond the Malachim. They also don't know who he is. He is as far removed from them as he is from us. Believe me, he's as far removed from them as from us. But he created two independent <coughs> systems, the spiritual system and the physical system. That we, and we bridge the two. Uh, we have an Ishama, which is part of the spiritual system, and we have the body, which is part of the physical system. But he transcends all systems. Very important idea to understand. And that's the true conception of the Rebbe Shalom. And what is that? That we have no idea what he is because beyond any system. The question was asked is that if he's so beyond our system, how do we describe him at all? How do we describe him at all? I mean, how do we say he's this and he says that? Because the truth is that he's really none of these things. The truth is that he acts this way in terms of our system, the way we describe him. But he certainly is none of those things. What you understood was a very fundamental principle in tefillah. You know, when we say tefillah, what does it say? It says in Shemona right? Hokel Hagorl Hagib Vanera, God, right? Hagorl Hagib Vanera, Hagorl the Great, Hagib the Strong, Vanera and the Awesome. Kel Enyoim, Dono Chasod and so on, right? So we say only three things, or rather four things, right? So the Gemara brings, there was once a Misa where somebody was once davening, I think it was an Amura. I forgot his name. And he was davening, and he started saying, Okel, the God, Hagol, the Great, Hagib, the Strong, Hanur, the Awesome. And he went on. Horachim, the Merciful, and the and He just went on and on, you know, like, he, you know, he, he went on to, 15, let's say, 15. He thought he was doing great, you know? So he davened to he finishes, and the other person, and so his Rebbe walks over to him and says, Why did you stop? He said, when he stopped, I mean, you know? He said, did you think you finished his praises? Of course not. Once you begin, you can't stop, right? Because anything you say is absurd, it's infinite. So what he was saying to that person is that the Rebbe gave us permission to say only those three things. But the truth is that if you really want to talk about him, 
it would be an infinite statement and the real truth is that you could say nothing about him because none of these are applicable to Aksmusai, to his real self. But even if you could describe him, it would be an infinite amount of statements. So why stop? So he meant to, well, once you began and you assumed that you could describe him fully because you're, you're saying more than three attributes, right? You're saying four, number five, number six. Then you're obviously assuming that, well, you know, you can you describe him fully. The answer, of course, you can't. You must go on until infinity, until you're dead. You can't stop. And But we've been given permission to say three and stop. But of course that's not a completion of what the Rebbein Shalom is. That's what he was telling him. That if once you begin to describe him, there's no end. There's nothing you could say about him that has an end. And uh, there's nothing more I have to say about the Rebbein Shalom. So therefore we can always say in Shimon Esrei, and no more. You know what it's like? It's like a little kid walking over to his daddy. Let's say his daddy is the, the greatest weightlifter in the world. I think the record now is about 550 pounds, you know? And a little kid goes over and says, wow, my daddy, he goes over to his friend and he's bragging, you know? My daddy's, wow, how strong he is, you know? He can lift, he can lift a whole table. Now, of course, between themselves, wow, you know, each of them thinks a table is a, a feat. But according to the father himself, it's preposterous, give me a table. He can lift 500 pounds, he can lift 300 tables on his back. <coughs> So, the, the, so it comes out that the, the shvach, the praise that this kid said about his father, is ridiculous. It's ridiculing his father. It would have been better if he had said nothing at all. And the essence of tefillah is it's nothing. If you want to praise the Rebbeinu accurately, right, there's only one way to say it. And that is, God, I have absolutely nothing to say about you because whatever I say cannot possibly comprehend therefore I am silent in my description of you that is the greatest shvach that you can say to the Bernstein utter silence because there's nothing else you can really say now it doesn't mean you should go home and stop davening but in any case uh, that is really the true tefillah of one I mean that's the true recognition of the Bernstein that there is nothing more you really can say I can't describe you so I might as well not stop because nothing I say can describe me because it's all infinite and as we've learned now none of them is even applicable to him because he's beyond those words that we use because those words are only part of our system like great and, and strong he's beyond all that altogether so right now our understanding of the Rebbein is much deeper than most people's understanding of the Rebbein that it's not Stami has an infinite variety of attributes there is no attribute that's even applicable to him. Which brings us to the next idea. Where do we see that? It says a Pasuk in Yeshaya. It says, V'yamit damyuni, Yeshaya says to Klai Yisrael. V'yamit damyuni, and unto whom will you, and unto what, or whom will you compare me? V'eshve, and I will be similar. Who are you going to compare me to? Yima Kodesh, says the Holy One. That Pasuk is Megala reveals a tremendous principle and that principle is what we're talking about. God says through Yeshaya to Klai's room, who are you going to compare me to? What are you going to compare me to? And I should be compared to that. Because the answer is nothing. God resembles nothing in this universe. Absolutely nothing. That's what we be me to Damunivieshvir. Who are you going to compare me to? In that Pasuk lies the fundamental idea that God is not comparable in any way to us. 
We have our own system. He's beyond the system. Wait, I'll show you. That'll, I'll cover that. And it says Yema Kodesh. Says the Holy One. Why does it say Yema Hashem? Why Kodesh? What does Kedusha really mean? The word Kedusha or the root of Kodesh really comes from the word to be separate, to be removed. Now you begin to understand what that means. When we call the Rosh Hakodesh, the Holy One, what we're really saying is God is completely removed from the entire universe or system as we know it. That's Kedusha. In other words, the has no admixture of any entity in him besides his pure posh itself. He is completely removed from the physical and the spiritual universe. That's why he's called Hakodesh, the Holy One. That's why the Pasuk ends there, Yom HaKodesh, says the Holy One. The Holy One says, because that name describes his complete removal from the universe. V'yamit damyuni v'eshver. What are you going to compare me to? I'm not like anything you know. I'm completely indescribable. Yom HaKodesh, says the Holy One. That's really the idea of Kodesh. And when it, when Rebbe says, Kedushim to you, right? What does God say to Klaeson? You should be holy. Kedushim to you. That statement has tremendous significance. Because it... No, no, not from Goyim. Kedushim to you means separate yourselves like I am separate. Separate yourselves from the entire physical universe. That's which we'll get into. We'll get into later. That word condition to you has tremendous fundamental significance of what the ultimate direction a Jew takes. And that's complete separation from the physical universe. Right now it sounds like a, far, uh, you know, uh, a strange idea. Don't worry. As we get on, that idea will also become very clear to you. But that condition to you, I'm telling you now, hints at or expresses a very fundamental <coughs> principle of Yiddishkeit. That our goal is, is to reach the state of the Rabbani Shlodim, so to speak, Yochel. We can't reach his complete separation. But in a certain sense, our goal is also to, to become separate, Kodosh. But it means from our system or our universe, our physical universe. Not the total system, but our physical system. Which we'll get into as time goes on. Now, so we now understand what the idea of Kedush is. We understand what the Elmit Damuni. And you remember the third idea was Einayim Mavadai. And now we understand what Einayim Mavadai in comparison. The Rebbeim creates a system which he is independent of, right? So the Elmitidam Yuni says that God is not comparable to the system he created. Einayim Mavadai, that there is nothing else besides God, says that even the system he created is not really existing the way he is. That's what those two different ideas mean. That even after he creates a system in which he is not comparable to, he is, the system itself is, does not exist the way he does. And if you recall the illustration I gave in terms of the dream, the difference between a dreamer and his dream, that the dream does not have the same kind of existence as a dreamer. We do not have the same kind of existence as a Rebbein And that's what those, the difference between those two psukim. Yamitidamun means he creates a system of which he is beyond, and everybody else is included, namely the Ruchni Stiga system and the physical system. And Enel Bavadi means this entire Bria creation, which is a system which he created, among an infinite variety of systems he created, itself does not compare in terms of its existence 
The next question is, if that's the case, how then does the Rebbe Nishlam appear to us? The answer is, right? how does he appear to us? We know he's beyond our system, he's beyond the Malachim system, he could have created an infinite variety of systems, right? And even in davening, we know that he's beyond that system, right? So then the question, of course, is, how does he appear to us? The answer is, Yud Gimomidis. The Rebbe says to Moshe Rabbeinu, there are 13 attributes by which I am known, right? Rachum, Vechanon, Erech, Apayim, Barav, Chesed, Ve'emes, and so on. The Rabbi appears to us with a certain personality. He has a certain consistent, projected personality that he always appears to us as, and he doesn't deviate from that personality. What is his personality? The Yud Gimomidis, the 13 attributes. They tell us what the Rabbani Shalom is in terms of the way he presents himself, in terms of his actions to the universe. You see? By studying the Bria, if you recall, I said studying the Bria means two things. To understand what he created, the structure, and the ongoing intervention of the Rabbani Shalom in the Bria, because he keeps intervening in the Bria. He punishes some people and he rewards others and so on. We can understand the personality of the Rabbani Shalom or rather the guise that he assumes in our Brio. Remember, his real personality, so to speak, is not conceivable, but it's so what? He wants us to know this kind of personality, and this is the way that we identify the Rabbi Nishlam. As a Baal Chesed, as a Baal Toiv, as Rachmim, and so on, Erechapayim, Rav Chesed, and so on, all the different attributes that the Rabbi comes across, that he says, Yud Gimomidus. That is the personality that he created and he enters or interacts our universe in that personality or that guise. Okay? And that's, as far as we're concerned, that's all we have to know. <coughs> is that this is the Rabbani Shalom. Of course, as long as we know that in truth it's not, we don't know what he is. But for all practical purposes, we now can put that aside and we adapt we, our understanding of him is that he is what he said he is and believe me he is the quintessence of that and he's consistently that and he will always appear that way okay as these midas chesed and toiv and rachmim and all the midas toivos because he says it, the Roshim says that in the Chumash that this is the way I appear he's, he's a rachim before the chet and a rachim after the chet and so on in all the many many myriad ways how he appears, okay? It's always within the guise of the Yudhimimidis. That's his personality. So we can take a pray to the Rabbani Shalom that he's a Rachum, he's a Chanun, right? He's Gumel Chasodim Tevim, because that's exactly what he does. That's what he is, and that's the way he acts toward us. And for all practical purposes, that's the way we recognize him, and that's how we pray to him. And that's exactly what he wants. Okay? So now we finally understand what the Rebbe Shalom is in terms of what he wants us to understand him as. You know what the three fundamental components or elements of the universe are? You know what they are? Matter, space, and time. Matter is etzem, space is mokom, and time is man. Those are the three fundamental ideas in this Bria. That we all exist in space, we all exist in time, and we all are made up of matter. Okay, the Rabbani Shalom is none of these. And just for a little appreciation of that, I just want to go into what are these three things and what he therefore is not. 
and you can get a real idea of how he transcends the three fundamental components so obviously he certainly doesn't look like any of us because he, he, he's beyond any of the three ideas okay let's take a look at space no nobody sees him he's not seeable he's not knowable no not at Musa it's not knowable <laughs> no but you'll be granted such a, a tremendous amount of knowledge about him that that itself will be Oilam Habo. Well, which we'll talk about when we get to Oilam Habo. Now when we get there, I should say, and when we talk about the topic of Oilam Habo. Does anybody know what space is? We all know what space is, right? We exist in space. But I'll bet really nobody knows what space is. You know what space is? You know, if you, if you, space is right, this extend exists in space, correct? That means you can put your finger here and you can put your finger here, right? It's obviously they're apart, correct? But wait a minute. They're apart because in between is a shtenda. But if you put your finger in one and here, is there anything between, to me, between my two fingers besides air? Let's assume there's no air. Let's assume I'm in outer space. If I put my finger in outer space in one spot and then I put my finger in another spot, are they in, are they in the same location? No, they're apart. But is there anything in between? Nothing. Wait a minute. So there's nothing in between. Mm-hmm. But how can, how can there be, if there's nothing in between, why are my fingers separated? By Good question. By no, no, distance is after the fact <laughs> that there's space, we know there's distance. But the question is, if there's nothing in between, then you tell me why my two fingers in outer space are apart. The answer is because space is merely the extension of nothing. And all things exist in nothing, and therefore they can mispash it, they can extend themselves. Mispash this. Wait, I'll explain again. I'll explain again. What is space? Space means that there's an extension. See the extension? Because my hands can go apart, right? But there's nothing here, right? What does that show us? It means that nothing, no thing, which means nothing, itself has extension. Look, you see, there's nothing in between, yet nothingness has extension because I can put my finger at two different points in nothing. So it doesn't mean that matter has extension. Nothing itself has extension. That's really what space is. The Rebunishan created the Bria, he created a concept called Mokum, means that all of a sudden he made nothing have extension. Now, once there's extension all over, you don't, right? Then the Rebunishan, when he creates a thing that has matter, can now fit into that extension. It can now, when he creates the thing, it now extends itself into the space available for it. But if nothing, if nothing did not have extension, then matter could not exist in space because there's nothing to extend itself in. There's nothing there. It's a, a it's an abstract idea, but it's not that hard to understand because it, with that illustration, nothing has extension. That's all. It means you can ha- you can extend, you can have a distance without anything being in between, which means that space does not mean that matter extends therefore you can take a measurement like three feet nothing also can extend into three feet of nothing that's what mokum really is and if i take a safer right and i put it right in between that three feet 
Of course, now this is in between the extensions of nothing, right? But that's why this can exist in there because this has room to spread itself in that space which is extension of nothing. You understand what space really is? That's what space really is. Now, that's our first idea. That an extension of nothing is really called space or mokum. And that matter, when it's created, is placed into that mokum, and therefore matter itself can extend. It has dimensions. But that's only because mokum precedes matter. Everybody understand that? Okay. Now, when, if I ask you, wait a minute, not only is it true that space extends itself, but did you know that space or nothing extends itself in three different directions? Because I can go like that, I can go like that, and I can go like that, or rather this way. There's length, width, and height, height, or breadth. So it comes out that not only does space or nothing have extension, right, but I can go this way, I can go that way, and I can go this way. So it extends itself in three different directions. So if you really thought you understood nothing, now you really understand nothing. Okay? That, that space extends itself, not only does it extend itself, but it extends itself in three different directions. Therefore, wait, therefore matter, matter, a thing when you put it into space, also extends in three different directions. That's why you have length, width, and height, or breadth. You see? Because space is what's called three-dimensional. Now you understand what dimensional means? Three-dimensional space is nothing more than three-directional space. It means that space goes three ways. Therefore, the matter which occupies space also goes three different ways. You see? So therefore, nothing has extension. It extends three ways three directions, and that's what's called three dimensions. Therefore, matter, when it occupies space, also extends three different directions. Now, there's a notion of a two-dimensional being. Which now, let's take a two-dimensional universe. You know what a two-dimensional universe is? like a universe, it's like a shadow, right? A two-dimensional universe would be space, but only extending length and width. It has no breadth. It's a shadow, like a universe of shadows, okay? Now, that would be a two-dimensional universe, okay? A one-dimensional universe would only be length, it would be a line. There would be no, there would be no uh, width or breadth. Now, we, do not, we understand what two dimensions and, three dim- and one dimension is, and three. We don't really conceive of it, because how can something exist if it doesn't have three dimensions? Again, it's hard. But I can understand what a shadow universe is. Okay. Now, if you think that space only has to exist in three, of course not. It can exist in two and even one, although it's hard for us to understand, but we can understand it. Can space extend itself in four directions, four dimensions? The answer is yes. But we have no idea where that fourth direction is. And space can extend itself in ten directions, but we have no asaga, you see? So in other words, the revolution created the Bria with Mokum, space, nothing, to extend itself in three directions. He could have made a universe to extend itself in two directions, or one, or 14, or 18. We do not know what that means, okay, but nonetheless it's still true. In fact, mathematics has formulas for more than three-dimensional universe. 
it has formulas for a tenth dimensional universe, of course it's only stood, understood in mathematical terms. Nonetheless, it's still a universe. Now, we understand what space, the idea that space is three-dimensional, that matter occupies space, and it itself therefore is three-dimensional, that you can have more than three dimensions, you can have two dimensions or one dimension, and that God could have created four or any amount of dimensions, and also the idea that Mokum itself is a Nivra, space itself is a created concept. Now, which means automatically that God does not exist in space. He is spaceless in that sense. He doesn't need Mokum to occupy himself in. He doesn't need a space and therefore he can fit himself in that space. Because we cannot conceive of that. We can't even conceive of a fourth dimension or a set of one dimension. How do we conceive of a, a dimension, a no-dimensional being? He can't. But the Rebbe is a no-dimensional being. Because the Rebbe has no Mokum. That's again, remember we talked about Ayim and Koimoy Laharitsoy? Where is the Mokum of the Rebbe Shalom to, to praise him? The answer is that he has no Mokum. He, he has no space. Forget about that, he is all over. In our terms, Mole es kolo the Russian fills all space, which we spoke about previously. But the true idea is that the Russian doesn't exist in space whatsoever. Only we, this universe, has dimensions. He is spaceless. So, of course, he is beyond the system. Our system has space and it has a three dimensional space. He's beyond not only three dimensions, he's beyond the concept of Mokum. Okay? And when we talk about Simpson, you'll understand that even better. I can't conceive it. Wait, okay. I'm going to stop now uh, this year. And next week we'll continue on time. What time? And then we'll begin to go into the extensions of the principle. Now we understand the Rebbe to a certain extent. How does that understanding, how is that now going to help us in terms of understanding Yiddishkeit? In terms of the reward, the task of a Jew, the history of Jews, and on and on. We'll be going developing that in the weeks to come. This year is going to be speaking about the rest of the attributes of the Rabbani Shalom as we know him. And then probably starting next week, we're now going to use those principles that we've been learning for these several Shurim and begin applying it how they form the pivotal principle of the Bria. Now, what we've been discussing until now, which is, and you probably maybe wonder why I'm spending so much time on it, is to discuss the Ahdus, the unity of God. Now, to understand what it means when we say that the Rabbani Shalom is one. And through the previous Shuram, I've been explaining what the idea of Ahdusi really means of Echot, of Yochot, of Yuchot, of what Enoid Melvada means, of what Biel Mishitam Yuni means, all the different concepts about what it means when we say that the Bernstein is really one. And starting next week, or maybe even this week, it depends why, you know, how much time, you're going to begin understanding why so much time is spent on that. But before I begin that, I want to be mashing the Indian, at least in terms of the Shurim, one can, one can never complete the uh, ideas of God. But anyway, I want to try to complete something here in terms of the other attributes of the Rabbanish Shalom. 
And that'll sort of like round out enough of an understanding of the Rabbanisham to proceed into the real Hashkofa in the sense of how do we understand the application of that principle? How does knowledge of the Rabbanisham actually translate itself into the Bria? So in other words, we didn't start speaking rather about the Rabbanisham because we have to give him covet, we have to give him honor since he's the greatest being of all so if we start a Shein Ashkafa, you got to start speaking about him. Like you defer to the president, you know, president and so on, you know. That's not why we mentioned although I'm sure that would have been enough of a rationale. And we didn't speak about the Rabbani Shalom because he is the beginning since he created everything. So he's obviously the first uh, being or nimsa that we encounter. That's also not why we spoke about him. The reason why we spoke about the Rabbani Shalom first is because the Rebbeinu is a, the knowledge of the Rebbeinu is a prerequisite to understand Hashkof itself. It's not Stama Mitzvah, where by the way there's a God. In order to understand the Bria itself, you must understand ideas about the Rebbeinu, and that's why so much time was spent. But you really begin appreciating it, you know, as as from actually from shortly after the Shia, how things really uh, materialize. Now. There's certain other very fundamental concepts about the Rebbeinu which is very important to know. The first of these ideas is called Poshut. God is a very simple being. Now, does that, that does not mean that God is simple-minded, or that he's very naive, or in a simple the way we, you know, when we speak about he's a simple person, means he's not complex. That's not what we mean when we say that about the Rebbeinu. What we mean is that the Rebbeinu has what has absolutely no parts whatsoever. There is no period. Now, period is a very important word. Period means there's no division. There's no parts, no separations of components. God does not consist of components. Now, if you take a look at us, we consist of components, right? We have a brain, we have a heart, we have, a, we have so many different kinds of organs. And millions of different cells and so on. The Rebbeinu has none of these halakim or parts. Now what does that mean? It doesn't only mean that God doesn't have different organs or whatever. Let me give you an example. Take the human mind. The human mind has several fa faculties. It can do several processes. For instance, memory is one process, right? It remembers. It has an imagination. If you close your eyes and you imagine something, there it is, right in front of your eye, right? So obviously it's able to draw a, an, a, an image, a mind image of something. So that's the imagination. Human beings also have, they can, uh, they can reason or think. They have a reasoning process where you can actually reason. Human beings also have a will. A will means you have a rotsam. Whether you are willed or not, we all have a will. But the thing is that the will is so simultaneous with the act, they don't realize you're willing. You only realize you're willing when you want to do something and all of a sudden you can't do it. So something hurts. The hurt is because something is opposing your will. Okay? But human beings have a will. A will is that which wants. We all want things. And when we want something, we do it. Not only that, if you take your hand and you lift your hand, right? That hand... I will that hand to lift. But I don't see, not only I don't feel the will, right? 
But I'm only, I don't see the connection between my will and this arm. I don't know why it lifts. I have no idea. I don't, I, how can my willing lift an arm? I don't know. Okay? Nobody really knows. But the idea is that we all will. Okay? And not only that, but when my arm is lifted, you know that from microsecond to microsecond, I have to keep willing it up. Because if I stop, I can stop it midair. It means my, I didn't will it anymore. So in other words, the human mind, part of it has a will, okay, which is the moving force behind all its actions, even if you're not aware of it, and even if you don't know how it's connected to your body. But it's always continuous in all your actions. So the human mind has a will also. The human mind also has creativity and so on and so forth. It has many, many different faculties, right? Now, so we see that it has different faculties. Each faculty is different than the other, right? Memory doesn't interfere with reason, which doesn't interfere with imagination, which doesn't interfere with the will. Each one is a separate, distinct concept, okay? Well, let me just... Um, that's the first idea. Second idea is, wait a minute, who do, what does all these different things? The answer is the brain, right? But the, there are different areas or locations in the brain that do these different things. There are a certain group of cells that's responsible for will a certain group of cells that's responsible for memory, and so on. Each faculty has a different location than the other faculty. Obviously, because one faculty cannot give rise to two things simultaneously. It can only do one thing at a time. Okay? So therefore, the source of the faculties, that which enables them to be done, is obviously located in different places in the brain. The third idea is that the faculty, let's say memory, and the cells which enable it to happen are two different things. Cells is one thing, and the process called memory is another thing. Right? Those are three distinct ideas. The division of faculties, the division in locations, and the division between the actual property, the faculty, and the thing which allows it to be, the source. Right? That's what exists in human beings. So in other words, everything has pure, but that really shows it out because in the mind itself we divide it three times, rather than just saying we have an arm and a heart or whatever. Now, in the Rabbani Shilayim, it's all one. What does that mean? That means there's a certain thing that reasons, wills, remembers, does everything. All the faculties are one. The organ that produces the faculty is one. There's no different locations for any of these different faculties. And the faculty and the organ are synonymous. Now, what am I really saying? I'm saying the whole thing which I divide in three is really one. Now, we do not understand what that means because in this brio, things are divided. There's a notion called period, division, components. All things have division. There's no such thing as something which is one principle and from that emanates everything. The property, the source, and the property and the source itself are one. In the Rabbanishlam, it's one simple idea. His essence is simple. In other words, that he, or rather the faculties, the origins, are all the same. He and the origin itself are the same. He and the faculty are the same. It's all one. And we have no concept of what that means. But that's a very important idea to know. It's called poshut. 
He's simple. That's what God's simplicity means. There's no complexity. Complexity means there's no halakum. There's no components. It's called poshut. Once we understand that, then we begin to see that the yochit, the achdus of the Rebbein Shalom, is even more profound. Not only is God one in the sense that nothing else existed before He created it, and nothing else exists even after He created it, compared to His existence, right? This is in terms of what He does. But even the essence of God is one. There's no components. In other words, He is one before and after His Maisim, and he is one in his own essence. You see? So the true meaning of Echot, one, means he is one. There is no components. Even the being itself, God himself, is one. There is no division whatsoever. So that's the deeper meaning of the word Achdusai, as applied to his Metzius, his essence itself. And if you recall last week, or whatever, previous one, I made a differentiation between essence and existence or things, or we all have existence, right? Means we, I am not existence, I have existence, that's why I'm here. But the idea of existence is separate from me. The Rabbani Shalom, since he's poshit, is existence. Because if God ha- had existence, he again would be a mukar. He would have halok. He and his existence would be two different things. No. God and his existence are one, which means to say, that somehow God is that kind of a being that actually is the concept called existence. Again, we have no asaga what that means because there's no such thing in this brio. All things are things and they exist. They have existence. I never saw a thing called existence walking around. What does it look like? We don't know. So the Bershalom and his existence are one which means that he is existence. He's Matthias. If you understand that, many of the attributes will become understood why they are so. If you understand this last point. So, Poshit of the Rebbeinu means that he is a simple being in the sense that he has no components, that everything is one principle. Even the very fact of his existence is one. That he and his existence are synonymous, which is saying that he is existence. In the in real in the reality, okay, that's what pashtusay means. Poshim, simple, and also that what that the word echod one, that the fact that God, uh, the fact that the Roshim is one, or rather poshit, is a deep meaning of achdusay. That even He is one. There's no plurality. There's no multiplicity. There's no division. There's no parts. There's no components, etc., etc. So that's the idea of Achdusoi emanating from the fact that he is simple. So we discussed the Rebbeinu's Pashtusoi means Poshut, his simplicity. We discussed his unity as illustrated even further by simplicity, right? Besides all the other ideas of Achdusoi, which we discussed previously. Now we're going to just talk about God's perfection. Ishlemusoi, right? The Rebbeinu is a perfect being. Now, what does that mean? Well, what is a perfect individual? A perfect... we One would learn that perfection in God means simply like this. That God has all the qualities of existence. Everything. He's good, kind, everything. God has everything, all the qualities of existence. 
number one. And the second idea that one would learn, or people understand it, is that the Rosh Hashanah, in every quality he has, he is infinite. Okay? So the Rosh Hashanah has all qualities, that's Sholem. He's perfect, means Sholem comes from the word peace or harmony, which means that everything is perfect, there's no disharmony. Okay? Nothing jarring harmony. Notice he's complete. That's what perfect means, Sholem. Mashlam means the complete. So therefore the Rebbein has all qualities and in every quality he's infinite. Right? That's the way the Poshet Pshat is. But that's not really what Shlemus means. I mention it because if somebody tells you this is what Shlemus means, if you ever get a person who's going to discuss these Nyanam, then that's not really what it means at all. The Rebbein if you remember, has no qualities that we know of. Because all qualities are created. Remember we spoke about that? That everything we know of is created. Evil is a created concept. Good is a created concept. Justice is a created concept. Love, war, peace. You name it, it's created. That's what Yeshaya means when he says, Who are you going to compare me to? The Rebbe says through Yeshaya, Who are you going to compare me to? And I will be similar to that. Yima Kodesh. And if remember I said that Kodesh means that act, the name signifies the complete separateness of the version from this universe. And Vyamitadamunu, of course, is we can compare me to nothing. There's nothing that you could point at and say, ah, that's similar to the Burnishlam. He's not comparable to anything else. So therefore, he has none of the meters that we think he has. Remember I told you that's only the guys. If he assumes the Mida, it's the way he enters the Bria. That's what he looks like he has. So, if that's the case, then we must alter it slightly and say that whatever Mida the Rabbanishim wants to adopt as his guys, right? He has that Mida totally. Not infinitely. Totally. What does that mean? That means that the Mida itself, you don't say that God has, God is infinitely good. Because when you say the word infinitely good, you automatically are giving it to numbers. Because part of infinity is 5. Right? Or 10. And infinity means it's a quantity, but it's an endless quantity. Right? The idea with the Rebbein is God, is, that the Mida, goodness, Tev in the Rebbein is not quantifiable. God has all there is to that Midah. And anything, if that Midah has anything else, it doesn't exist. Period. Whatever that Midah has, God has. Or God is doing, if that's what he wants to adopt. If the version wants to be good, if that's his Midah, then he has the complete totality of that Midah. There is nothing in that Midah that he does not have. And if he doesn't have it, it's because it doesn't exist or because he didn't ex- give it existence you see so Shlemus does not mean the version has all the Midas he doesn't have anything but whatever Midas that he decides to adopt he has the totality of that Midas so God is the quintessence of any Midas he has and which Midas does he have which are the Midas the Yud Gimel Midas right Rachum v'chanon erach apayim rav chesed v'emes and so on. The thirteen yud gimel midas. The Rebbeinu Shlom has those midas, 
or he appears in those midas, in the totality of that midah, in the quintessence of that midah, means there's nothing you can do that can even touch the midah that the Rabbani Shalom has. Taif. You cannot, you can, you can never be even, you know, like a billion compared to the kind of goodness that he has because he's got the medium totality and you have an extremely minute quantity of that meter. And one does not even say that the meter that God has is infinite because infinite bespeaks of quantity. God does not have quantities in that meter. He has the total meter. That's what the idea of Shlemus means. That whatever meter Rebbeinu has is perfect because he embodies or he, he exhibits the totality of that meter. Shlemus also means another idea. That the Rebbeinu is perfect means that there is nothing in him that's... he has no needs. He has nothing that has to have a Hashlama. There's nothing in him that's lacking or wanting. For instance, in us, we have a tremendous amount of needs. We fulfill those needs, hopefully, right? Because we go out and we, we you know, we, we have jobs, we make money and we eat, but we need food to live. And we have many, many, many different kinds of needs that the human body has. The Rebunishim has no needs, he has no lack. That's what the real idea of Shlemus means perfect in the sense that there's no deficiency there's no lack there's nothing that God has to do even if he even if he's involved doing it that has to be mamali or fulfill some lack even if he can do it no there's whatsoever no lack in the Rebbe again we don't really understand what that means we can understand it from a human standpoint that like we can say well this person has everything he's got money he's got everything you know but of course that's not really what Shlemus is because he's got it he means, what that means is that he has the ability of fulfilling all his needs. But when we say that the Rebbeinu is perfect, God has no needs. There's no lack whatsoever in the Rebbeinu That's the true meaning of Shlemus by the Rebbeinu The next attribute which one should understand about the Rebbeinu is something which I had mentioned previously. That we do not have to be, right? We may or may not be. I mean, uh, people are dying all the time, right? So therefore, we may exist, we may or may not exist. There's nothing in us that makes us be that we have to keep going. The existence of God is necessary. What that means, God must exist. From within His own essence, there's something that makes Him be. The Rebellion doesn't have an option of suicide. He doesn't have an option of destroying himself in any way. He cannot annihilate himself in any way. The Rebbe his existence is necessitated. It's called Mukhrach HaMetzius. His Metzius, his existence is Mukhrach, is forced. Not that he's something is forcing him outside of himself, but he maintains himself where he must be. So non-existence of the Rebbe is not possible. If you recall, I said that there can only be one kind of God, the idea of what Yochud means. God is one, God is the absolute one. The absolute one means that a being like the Rebbe can only be one kind. Okay? That really goes on this idea that I'm saying. There can only be one kind of being that must be. 
there cannot be two kinds. A being whose existence must be, there can only be one kind of being like that. There cannot be a duplicate. There can't be two beings that must be. And we'll see why later. But that centers on that kind of an idea. His yochid centers on the fact that he is so that's the idea that God must be God, there's no option non-existence by the Bible is not possible in addition God must be perfect it's not God happens to be perfect that God's very essence dictates or forces his own perfection so he's God must be So the perfection of God is not an accident that happens to be that way, chance, or whatever. It flows from His essence. There's something in Him that makes Him perfect and makes Him, He must be perfect. You know, that essence demands perfection and therefore He is perfect. He must be perfect with that kind of an essence. Okay? That's also a very fundamental idea. Now, how do we understand some of these ideas? Is there any idea about the Rishonim that we can understand that will explain a lot of these attributes that you know are obviously not comprehensible <coughs> in the sense that we certainly don't find them in this Bria at all? There's no Bria alive that exhibits anything anything near these kind of qualities. Also, you'll notice that all the attributes of God that I just mentioned is not attributes of Him. It's attributes that we have, and I'm merely saying that He is not. If you notice, it was all negatives. We are imperfect, correct? But he is not imperfect, therefore he is perfect. Well, it's not true. I mean, it's, we, it was, I'm, we, we are learning about God from us in the negative sense. If you notice, we are imperfect, but God is not like us. He is perfect. We may or may not be. He must be. We can be duplicated. He can only be one. We are complex, he is portioned. We are multiple, okay? Uh, there are many humans, okay? The Rebunshalom, even his essence is one, and so on. All I did, if you thought I was explaining the Rebunshalom, you have a mistake. I was merely comparing the Bria and saying that he is not. Remember in the beginning I said what the guideline is? There are two rules. One, is that the only way we can know the Rebunshalom is through the Bria, right? And comparing the Bria and saying he is not that, therefore we must, we must deeply think about the Bria, and then we will know deeply what God is not. That's number one. And number two, that the only way we can understand the Rebunshalom at all is the way he has decided to enter the Bria, the guise that he's assumed. That's the positive we know about the Rebunshalom. But we really know the famous statement that that his real essence is not known. Okay, remember that was the guideline. So, I just fulfilled my guidelines. In no way did I say anything about the Rabbani Shalom that was a positive statement that applies to him. It's all negatives and even the positives are merely the guys he adopts. Now, back to the question. So the question I asked was, is there any kind of idea that we can understand about the Rebunshalom that would explain these attributes? And maybe there is. 
when we say that the Jerusalem is existence, certain things seem to get cleared up. How? Okay. If God is existence, then obviously He's perfect. Because you cannot have more than Him. He is obviously the totality of everything. If God is existence, then obviously whatever He has is all that is, because that's what He is. Right? You see? That explains that. Once the religion becomes existence himself, then obviously he is perfect because there's nothing else. <coughs> because not anything else would mean it wouldn't exist. Whereas obviously what he is, is totality, because he is a full measure of that existence. So it explains Shlemus. It explains also why he must be, because existence must be. It's not like a thing which may or may not be, where the essence, the existence of it is only added to it. But if a thing is, is existence, then obviously it must be because it's pure existence. Being is its essence, or existing is, is what it is. Also, we can understand why it can't have any duplicate. Because you can have two different things, but how can you have two different existences? There's only one existence. There are many things that exist. But there's only one idea called existence. There's no duplicate or different existences. You see? There are different things that exist. But when you talk about the fact that they have existence, there's no two things. In fact, the one thing that all things have in common is the fact that they exist. That is the greatest hashivah comparison you can make on all creation is that everything is. After that, everything breaks down into something different. There's no two things that are the same. So if the revolution is existence, obviously, he must be, and there can be none, no duplicate of the idea of existence, only in things, but not in existence itself, and he must be perfect, you see? So therefore, a lot of these ideas become understandable. Because that's what we understand. If once we understand that his essence is existence, then he must, he, he's the only one that can be, and there can't be a duplicate. That's what it's meant by, it flows from his essence, the fact that he must be. Because obviously there's no two kinds of the idea called existence, and so on. That idea lends a lot of understanding. That also, idea also lends, if you recall, Mole Kolar's Kavoidah, that God is in everywhere. There's no Mokum that's Ponoi. There's no such thing as a place that God's presence is not there. Because obviously if God is existence, then nothing would exist unless he pervades it and gives it the existence. So therefore he must be somehow in every atom because he is the quality of existence and they have an essence. So that explains that also. It seems that that one idea perhaps explains a great, a lot of the attributes, at least in our terms. So I offer it as a, as at least some kind of a explanation, even though we have no idea what it means to be pure existence. Uh, you know, we don't know what that means. Okay. But if, uh, you know, if some of the mess or confusion is a little straightened, it's also not bad. Mm-hmm. In explaining the medis of the Rebunishlam, one cannot be perfect. We have to be true to form and be imperfect. That's, that's all there is to it, really. That is basically the ideas of all the attributes of the Rabbanishon, at least in terms of what we'll be doing in the Shia. So as sort of like a sum up, what did we find out about the Rabbanishon? A lot of very interesting things. 
we found out that he exists that he's a first cause he brings everything into existence that he can con continues their existence without him they would cease instantly that he himself needs no first cause that he is simple that he is perfect that he is one he's the absolute one he's the only one before the creation and after the creation that he's beyond the systems that he must be what else did I live out these are all the interesting ideas that we found out about the Rabbani Islam. and also of course we found out that he has actually a specific personality of which he appears to this Brio and those are the Yud Gimamidus and that it's a mitzvah for us to try to understand the Rabbani Islam in two ways one is by examining the Bria and seeing what he's not because he cannot be compared and we should examine the Bria profoundly as Tamidi Chachomim or rather Tamidi Chachomos this group and we will then profoundly understand what he is not and the second Chiv for us really to understand all this emanates from Yodat is Hashem is the Midas that he appears or the costume or the guise or the personality whatever you call it that he appears to this Brio. That's also a mitzvah. And all, both of these things can only be understood from the Maisim or the Pulus of the Rabbani Shalom, the acts of God. And the acts of God, of course, are his creation. That more or less sums up the whole series of Shurim about the Rabbani Shalom himself. Now, we still have time, so now we begin the application. Really begins the fascinating part. You remember way, way back I said that the Rebbe decided to create a universe, right? And then when he created the universe, he created for one purpose only, to be native, to do good, right? To beings, to things that he would create, to do incredible good, right? You know, it's a tremendous state of pleasure. Also, what was also said is that the only source of pleasure that's perfect would be he himself. Right? Since God is perfect, like we're saying, it follows that in Him is the greatest source of pleasure. So therefore the Revolution decided that He would be the reward in Elim Habo, and nothing else. Not some kind of external reward, like eating good food or whatever. That experiencing God directly would be the reward in Elim Habo. And remember, since God is perfect, whatever He does is with perfection. If when the Rebbe gives good, it's called Hatova Shlema, the best possible good he can give. So therefore, since he decided that he wants to give you the best possible good, he decided, number one, that he would be the source of goodness, which I just said, right? And number two, of course, you have to work for it, if you recall. So therefore, he created a task, the whole idea of Din, if you remember that whole Shia. Now, putting that aside for a minute, going back into the fact that the Rebbe decided that he would be the source of all existence, or rather, he would be the source of pleasure. What does that mean? In other words, the is saying, you know, I'm not going to give him external sources of pleasure. Food, whatever is the pleasurable experiences that this world has to offer, which are many. He doesn't want that. Since God is perfect, he wants Hatava Shlemo, the best kind of good. So he's going to be the source. But wait a minute. If he's the source, it means somehow experiencing God. That's what it means. Somehow relating with him in a certain fashion but relating means somehow knowing him it's called hasago 
But the Hasoga means not knowing him with the intellect. It's experiencing his being, not by way of intellect, but by way of your own being. You just know he is, and you just feel his existence. And the byproduct of that is incredible, not incredible, but infinite pleasure. The experiencing of the liberation himself is an incredibly pleasurable act, and that's what Sadiqan feel. And that's what Sadiqan feel for those who are truly attached to God, even on this world, and that's what Nadim also feel. So if you think that Sadiq, which I mentioned, is giving up Messias Nefesh, you make no mistake. He's getting a tremendous trade-off. He's giving up the pleasures of this world for the pleasures of experiencing the revolution, which is infinitely greater. Unfortunately, I imagine nobody really has experienced it. You know, none of you people really have experienced it, so you don't really know what it means. However, it's possible to experience even in this world, which is another idea which will be explained at some future time. Now, that's the idea so far. That the Rabbanishlam says he will be it, means you are going to experience something about God himself. And that experiencing is incredibly pleasurable. Now, you now can come right back to me and say, wait a minute. How can we possibly experience something about the Rabbanishlam if he's not knowable? I mean, everything, every time we're experiencing Him, it's always via some kind of created entity. Right? Some created thing. We know He's good, but He created the idea of goodness, and He, he adapts that idea of goodness. So the question is, then what do you experience with Rabbi Islam? I mean, how do you get around this Bria business? Right? That's a good, valid question, isn't it? The answer is that of all the meters of the Rabbi <coughs> is one meter that we can experience almost directly, but indirectly. But it's a lot better than the other meters. Because they're all created. And you know which meter that is? Who's going to guess? There's one meter of the Rebunshanam that we can have much greater of a shaykhas to in terms of his etzim. Even though it's not his etzim, as you'll see, but it's closer to his etzim than everything else combined. Who knows what that is? You cannot experience this perfection. You know why? Because perfection, it means that God has something which is perfect. But then you have to experience in the thing itself. Perfection is merely an idea that whatever he has is perfect. But what does he have? Whatever he has is positive. You've got to experience something positive about him. Can't do that. You cannot experience something positive about God. What he really has. And then I'll know it's perfect. Can't do that, you see? Because that would be experiencing Atzmusa. So that's how. Can't experience anything positive about the Rebbein But there's one meter you can. And what is that? Achdusoy. His unity. Ah. Let me give you an example why you cannot experience God's perfection. Take a ball. A ball is round. It has shape, right? Can I experience roundness if the ball isn't here? No. Because roundness exists in the ball. It's not a separate thing by itself. The mind takes it away from the ball and says there's a concept called roundness. There's no such thing called roundness that I can touch that has nothing to do with the ball. No. Roundness is called an accidental being. It's something which is real, roundness, but it's an accident. It's not the regular accident, you know. It's a philosophical term. It means that it's something which must have something else to exist in. If you took away the ball, the substance of the ball, gone is the roundness. You see? The same thing with perfection. Something is perfect. There's no such thing as perfection in itself. Goodness is perfect, if he's perfect goodness, right? 
words, the meat of goodness, he's perfect in that, doesn't lack. But perfection itself is not a thing, it's an accident of goodness. It's a thing which is about goodness, that the goodness is perfect. If you took away the goodness, what would be left? Nothing, there's no perfection. Perfection doesn't stand there by itself and exist by itself. The mind looks at the idea and says, I understand what perfection means irrespective of the word goodness. But it doesn't exist in reality, such a thing called perfection. It's got to be locked in with something. You see? That's why in order to experience God's perfection, you must experience the meter itself, the positive meter. And then you know it's perfect. But you can't. You can't experience it in a positive way. You see? That's a, that's a difference between an accidental being and a substantial being. Roundness is an accidental being because it has to exist in something. If you take this something away, it ceases. And the ball itself is a substantial yeah. being. It can exist by itself. That's a short course on philosophy. But anyway, real short. Let me just uh, give an example. Let's say an architect builds a building, right? From that building, you can see that this architect is incredible. He has a profound mind. He's a brilliant architect, right? So you know that this, the man who made this has a brilliant mind, right? But are you experiencing the man? No, maybe he's dead 40 years ago. You see? So, you see what I'm saying? When you experience revelation, you're not experiencing, you're not experiencing the perfection from his pu'ulus, from his acts. You're experiencing the, the entity itself. What you can see, what you can grab, what you can contact, that's different. You see? And that's not knowable. You see? So, so, well, no, no. So the question, of course, now, of course, is what can we con- connect with the Rebbeinu? And the answer is Achdusay. But how? Okay. If you notice one thing, we say God is one, right? What's the opposite of one? Two, or another way of saying it, or well, multiplicity, plurality. The opposite of unity is multiplicity of plurality, right? What did the Rebbeinu do? do? The Rebbeinu Shalom, we will be able to experience the Rebbeinu Shalom that He is one. But you know how? You know, I can experience something as one by seeing that everything else is not. You know, it's, it's possible for a person to experience the unity of an individual by experiencing the fact that there is nothing else. Because the attribute of one doesn't really mean, is not really an attribute. It means that one merely means that whatever we're talking about is one, is one quantity. See, it's the same idea as perfection in Shlemus. It's really an accidental idea. You know what I mean? One what? You have to talk about one thing. If you remove thing, there's no concept of one even. What is one? One is quantity. Can you understand quantity without any objects? No, it has no meaning. There's no such thing as a quantity if there's no objects which have quantity. Right? If there's chairs in this room, there's no chairs, I can't talk about quantity either. If there's chairs, I can say there are three there are chairs and there are three of them. So the concept three exists. But if there's no chairs, there's nothing to talk about. I cannot even talk about quantity. You see? That's why quantity itself is an accidental being. Except again, the mind fools you because we can talk about quantity without ever referring to any objects. But of course in real reality it must you have to be talking about something. Right? The same idea. When we talk about oneness, oneness is not a thing. All it says is that whatever thing we're talking about is one of a kind. 
So when we say that the Rebbeinu okay, that the Rebbeinu is one, we mean is one of a kind of the Rebbeinu That's what we mean, right? But we one is not a one is not a midah in itself. You understand what I'm saying? Just like perfection is not a midah in itself. It's an attribute about something. Unity tells us that whatever God has is only one. But it's not a thing in itself. Okay? Now, we cannot experience the midas or the etzel of God. But you know what we can experience? We can experience that whatever God does have, there's nothing else. You know how? If what happens if God creates plurality? He creates the notion called plurality. Multiplicity. Period. Right? And all of a sudden you experience the non-existence of that plurality. What begins to happen? You begin to experience His His oneness of being. You don't experience a specific thing about Him, Mida, but whatever He is, you experience that whatever He has is one, and you can begin experiencing the oneness of that being without getting into any of His specific etzem. And you can experience that indirectly by seeing that nothing else has existence. You see? So, Achdusoy is part of His etzem because God truly is one. However, we can, number one, experience oneness because oneness itself is not a midah. It says that whatever God has is one. But the idea of oneness is not a midah in itself. It's, like I said, it's an accidental being. It's some, it's, it's an, a quantity must exist in a thing in order to have existence. So the, the idea of oneness in God, of course, we can experience because it's not He Himself. And even that, we don't experience the oneness of His Midas. We experience the lack of plurality of His Midas. So it comes out that we can experience the unity of the Rebbeinu indirectly, yet it's still something part of the Atzmusa of the Rebbeinu Get it? Therefore, the Rebbeinu is going to allow you to be Masig, His unity in Ulam Habo, in this indirect way. So it's the closest to get to His Atzmusa, Indirectly. But the other Midas don't even come to his Atzmusa, his self, you see? That's the closest we'll get. But don't worry, that itself is infinite. The comprehension of God's unity itself is infinite in the sense that it takes an infinite amount of time to perceive even his unity. Okay? So you'll be busy for all time to come even perceiving his oneness, which is not even a Midas, and you'll be experiencing it indirectly. That itself will take you an infinite amount of time and you will be experiencing infinite pleasure just by experiencing that. Okay? So it comes out that what we will be masig in Olam Habo is called two words. Hasogas Yehudoi. The comprehension, the experiencing of Yehud, of the Yehud of the Rebbe himself. Which is the indirect experiencing of God, which is the closest we can get to his positive idea, that's what we'll be experiencing in Ilm Habba. And that itself is infinite amount of time that we can experience that itself. And to the and the accompaniment to that is tremendous amount of pleasure. That is the pivot of the entire Bria. The Achdusoy of the Rabbanishlam. Because God now is going to create a universe based on his unity. And we're going to see how. How he does this incredible trick. This incredible way of doing it 
that everything you're going to see is going to be based on our crusade. And you know why? Because you know what God wants? He wants the task and the reward to be the exact same thing. God wants everything to mirror or to be his Yehudai and not different ideas. And we'll begin getting that into next week when we talk about the task. Right now we understand what the Ischa is. Remember I told you? The Ischa is Hasoras Yehudai. That's the Shanaidim Habo. That's it. And now you understand that it's the closest to Atzmutso without really getting to his Midah. Anything else is not. Okay? And the future Shun will be developing the entire idea of how Achduso, or Yehudai, answers everything. Okay? So now we have a central idea called Hasogas Yehudai. And next week Shun will be devoted to the entire unfolding of that.